If you would, open your Bible to Romans chapter 5 as we come now to the preaching of God's word and we continue to work through this incredibly theologically dense section of scripture that really puts the, the macro level reality of our salvation on display as we're going to see in the contrast between Adam and Christ. And so if you would, we're going to be in verses 15 to 17, but let's start reading in verse 12, Romans chapter five, starting in verse 12. It reads, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. These verses declare the superiority of Christ and his superiority in contrast to Adam. And that's because Christ has accomplished a remarkably stunning reversal, completely reversing the consequences of Adam's sin, even securing a far more glorious final outcome, setting the stage for the total and eternal restoration of all things, the restoration of man, the restoration of the earth, the entire cosmos the restoration and realization of the kingdom mandate, ultimately climaxing in God and his glory dwelling again in our midst and yet in a much fuller way than it dwelt with Adam. And to, and to declare this superiority, Paul draws a contrast between the headship of Adam and its effects and the headship of Christ and its effects, displaying the superabounding power of grace that has come in through Christ, not just in overturning the devastation and destruction that came in through Adam, but also establishing a far more glorious state that's totally immune of another fall. And to appreciate this contrast, it would be helpful to summarize the content of verses 12 to 14, just briefly. In those verses, Paul declared the headship of Adam over all of humanity, that when Adam sinned as our representative head, we all sinned in union with him, whereby his condemnation 
was counted to us and whereby we inherited his sin nature. That just as he died, so also we died, being estranged from God, conceived in sin, and dead in our trespasses and sins. And then to support that declaration, Paul noted that death reigned between Adam and the arrival of the law. Even though no one had sinned during that period in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And that's because where there is no officially codified law, there is also no transgression. Not only proving that Adam's sin was the cause of their death, but also that Adam was functioning as our representative head. And I want to help you appreciate the structure of this section. So I want to revisit a bit of what I shared with you last time and show you how this relates to what we looked at last time. It will help you appreciate the catalyst for this contrast. You'll note that at the end of verse 12, most translations there have a, an extended hyphen. And that signals that what follows is a digression, a, a parenthetical thought. Paul is interrupting himself mid-thought. And the digression runs all the way down to the end of verse 17, at which time Paul will complete the comparison and start the, that he began in verse 12. And so 18 and 19 are going to complete that comparison that he began in verse 14. And from 13 all the way through 17, you have this digression. But what's noteworthy is that verses 15 to 17 are actually a digression within a digression. And that's because there's something Paul has just said that he senses he needs to clarify. So what did he say? He said that Adam is a type of Christ, a type of him who was to come. And type signals resemblance or similarity. And though there is similarity, as we'll see in verses 18 and 19, there are also dissimilarities. That though Adam is a type of Christ depicting resemblance, there are definite dissimilarities between the two. And in this digression, within a digression, Paul highlights the dissimilarities. And so if you're tracking Paul's thought, he declares the headship of Adam in verse 12 and then interrupts himself with a digression to defend that declaration and in that digression asserts a typological connection generating a second clarifying digression. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul notes three contrasts between Adam and Christ. Contrasts that explain the, the typological relationship between them by noting their dissimilarities. And these contrasts function to put the superabounding power of the grace of God on display. Because what Christ has accomplished overturns what came in through Adam. And by way of application, as we reflect on these contrasts, each one should bolster our assurance. We've been talking about hope being the certain expectation, assurance that all that is given to us in salvation will 
in a guaranteed way come to fruition. Paul's been dealing with that going back to verse one. And so as we look at the the contrast between Adam and Christ, this should bolster our assurance. As we connect what we have even now in Christ to what will be a reality when all things come to their full fruition. So it should bolster our hope. In addition, it should create great anticipation as we anticipate what's on the horizon. For the believer, there is glory on the horizon. We are going to share in the revelation of the glory of God. And so as we see these contrasts and the much more work of Christ, we should be anticipating this future glorious reality that will be ours when Christ comes. And these verses should even help us to see that Christ is altogether lovely. That when you compare Christ to Adam, Christ shines as the glorious Savior that he is, the the wonderful counselor, worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And so your affections for Christ should even be stirred as we reflect on these contrasts. So note first, the superabounding realization of grace. The superabounding realization of grace. And by realization, we mean achievement or accomplishment. This is what Christ has accomplished. And so look at verse 15. Paul says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. So there's the contrast between the free gift and the transgression. And the transgression is obvious. It's Adam's sin. The question is, what is the free gift here? And because the transgression is the contrast, it would be somewhat intuitive to say that the free gift is the work of Christ, his one act of righteousness, obedience, what he did on the cross. And that's certainly in view. But this language of free gift is closely tied to the gift of righteousness. And Paul uses that language in the middle of verse 17 to describe that which we receive. This bestowal of righteousness that we receive in justification. And so the free gift encompasses both the accomplishment and the bestowal of the saving righteousness of Christ. Some translations render free free gift gracious gift. It's that which is freely and graciously given. This is favor bestowed. And that favor bestowed, which is here the free gift, is not like the transgression. Next part of verse 15. For Paul says... If by the transgression of the one, the many die. And he's setting up a conditional statement there. But we can turn it into a statement and say, by the transgression of the one, the many died. That's what happened. And not just the many, but all. Verse 12 says, death spread to all men all men without exception. 
no exemptions. And so on account of the transgression of Adam, his posterity, his descendants died. And the death we died was fundamentally a spiritual death, separation from God, estrangement from God. And that inevitably results in physical death, the end of this life. And physical death ushers a person into eternal death if they die without Christ. And so this is what has come in through Adam. Death. Spiritual death, physical death, and apart from Christ, eternal death. And it was all by the transgression of the one that this became a reality. And here comes the contrast, expressed in the language much more. Next part of verse 15, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And we've seen this previously, this much more language. Paul used it back in verses 9 and 10, only there the argument was from one manifestation of grace to another, the greater manifestation to the lesser. That if God has already accomplished the more difficult thing, namely our justification by the shed blood of Christ, much more than having now received our justification, we shall be saved from God's wrath. That's verse nine. And then verse 10, that if we were reconciled to God while we were enemies through the more difficult thing of Christ's death, much more, having received the reconciliation, we shall be saved by his life. And so the much more there is going from one expression of grace, the greater to the lesser expression of grace. Here, though, the argument is from the operation of God's judgment to the operation of his grace. From judgment to grace, where the grace of God abounds to the many in a much more way than the judgment of God did. And it does so Again, not only because it reverses the the effects of Adam's sin, but also because it secures an eternal and irrevocable standing in grace. We saw that in verse 2. A standing in the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Now, the consequences of Adam's sin are obvious, both sin and death, and Christ has defeated both. He has defeated both sin and death. The the two consequences that came into the world through Adam, Christ has accomplished. He atoned for death, being our our, our sin-bearing substitute, our our sinless substitute, and he conquered death by, by overcoming the grave, by rising from the dead. And so we can see it's obvious that he overcomes the effects of sin and death, the consequences of Adam's sin. And yet we might ask what it, what it is that this eternal and irrevocable standing in grace consists of. So not only has he overturned the consequences, but he's also secured this 
eternal and irrevocable standing in grace. So what is that? An eternal and irrevocable record of righteousness and eternal union and unbreakable fellowship with God. Now, why that's much more is because Adam never had that. Even prior to the fall, Adam didn't have that. He, had, he was created in perfection, so he was sinless in his creation, but it was unconfirmed, it was untested. And upon being tested, Adam fell, plunging the whole human race into sin. He had fellowship with God, but it wasn't an eternal, unbreakable union with him. He was in a condition where, by virtue of his transgression, he fell, losing his fellowship with God, plunging the, the whole human race into sin. And so Christ doesn't just reverse the effects of Adam's sin, much more he even establishes realities that Adam never had. Realities that are glorious and eternal and irrevocable. And so this causes the grace of God and the gift that came by the grace of Christ, whom here Paul identifies as the one man, amplifying his true humanity as the second and better Adam. That this all causes the grace of God and the gift that came by the grace of Christ to abound to the many, to those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, verse 17. Now, in light of the fact that fundamental to this reversal is the conquering of death, it'd be worth it to pause on death for a moment. Have you ever experienced the gripping fear of death. I can recall times as an unbeliever, not very often, and almost always while alone, for about a split second, in my thoughts, the reality of death dawning on me and, and experiencing the terror of that. And I was able to ignore it, get past it, hit the snooze button on it. But there's no question that that fear is the most terrifying fear there is, the fear of death. And death has come in through Adam and death, as we'll see in verse 17, reigns over all. In Christ, there's no fear of death. Because he conquered the grave, there is nothing to fear in death. You never need to fear death. If you're in Christ, the sting of death has been removed. Now, you may be somewhat concerned about the means by which you'll die. There are certainly less comfortable ways to die, but the death itself and what that ushers you into is not to be feared. Death is merely your entrance into the life to come. It's, it's, it's you beginning to experience the fullness of all that is ours in Christ. 
absent from the body, present with the Lord. And it's the beginning because even then you'll be awaiting the, the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. You'll be longing for the physicality of our salvation to come to fruition. So it's not even the full realization, but certainly it is a phenomenal realization of all that is ours in Christ. Amen. And so at that time, when we kiss this life goodbye, we will experience a fuller expression of the super abounding grace, the unmerited favor of God. And it's going to be wonderful. And so this is the first contrast, the super abounding realization of grace. Christ has accomplished something far greater, far better than what Adam squandered. That's the first contrast. The second is the superabounding result of grace. The superabounding result of grace. This comes out in verse 16. It says there, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So obviously the contrast here is going to be between that which came in through Adam and that which came in through Christ. Setting the table for the, the contrast between two distinct results, condemnation on the one hand and justification on the other. And that contrast is amplified by the number of transgressions tied to each one. Only one transgression in the context of condemnation, uh, an innumerable number in the context of justification. So next part of verse 16, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. That judgment there is the, the judicial verdict. So it was through that transgression that the judicial verdict was made. And the condemnation is the divine sentence. Both stemming from a single transgression where eternal condemnation will be unleashed upon, executed as the divine sentence on all who remain in Adam and die in their sins. And who would object to that? If you have any sense of the, the holiness of God, both the judicial verdict that comes on the heels of Adam's sin and the divine sentence are perfectly justified. And there's no, there's no complaint to be raised that, well, had I been in Adam's shoes, I would have done better. Every single one of us would have failed just as Adam did. Every one of us. The outcome would have been the same. But, next part of verse 16. On the other hand, the free gift arose from Many transgressions resulting in justification. So the gracious gift could not be any more unlike the transgression. That which came through Adam, it's the exact opposite. Not arising out of one transgression, but arising out of a seamlessly countless number of transgressions. And again, the free gift doesn't just overturn the sentence of condemnation. 
It also secures a right standing before God. Justification. Christ's unblemished record of righteousness imputed to us, credited to our account. I mean, again, intuitively, you would think that the vast number of sins, just take the redeemed and and consider all of their sins. I mean, start with your sin as one individual and just work out from that, that all of the sins of the redeemed, you would think that the the many transgressions, the countless number of transgressions that are generated by the lives of those whom Christ died to save would be an obstacle to the grace of God. Maybe even an insurmountable obstacle, especially in light of the fact that it was only one transgression that brought condemnation. If only one transgression results in condemnation, it is stunningly shocking that justification would arise out of countless transgressions. And that's what happened. This is a a super abounding grace. Even verse 20, there Paul says, where sin increased Grace abounded all the more. This superabounds this grace. The sinfulness of man is no match for the grace of God. No amount is too many and no sinner is too sinful. The superabundance of grace superabounds with inexhaustible surplus over the sinfulness of sin. It's phenomenal. And the contrast is between that which came in through Adam, condemnation, versus that which came in through Christ. So the power of what Christ accomplished superabounds in its results over the fallout from Adam's sin to all who receive this abundance of grace. And of course, that could only be because Christ died in our place, bore our sins in his own body, did so as a sinless sacrifice, making atonement for sin, where the the righteous indignation, the justice of God, he absorbed the full penalty of it in himself, where our sins were actually imputed to him and his righteousness to us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so when you consider this superabounding grace arising out of the, the countless number of the transgressions of all for whom Christ died to save, what ought to strike you is how forgiving God is. The forgiveness of God is on full display that in justification, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is judicially pardoned. And again, for each one of us, that would be a seemingly countless number of sins. Every violation of his law, every violation of his holiness, sins of 
omission. The things we didn't do that we ought to have done. Sins of commission. Things we've done that we were forbidden to do. Unintentional sins. Presumptuous sins. Reoccurring sins. In Christ, we don't just have full and free forgiveness. We have super abounding forgiveness. And so as we reflect on the forgiveness of God, there ought to be an immense degree of gratitude. Our hearts should be filled with thankfulness. We should be overjoyed when we consider the forgiveness of sin that has come to us in Christ, this super abounding grace. And yet I realize that we may not always feel that way about God's forgiveness. And there are a couple of things that we can do to short circuit this joy, this glorious bestowment of grace in our lives. One is to view God as stingy. To act like God's reluctant to forgive. That he parcels out his forgiveness rather sparingly. Is that how you view God's forgiveness? That God is in heaven, begrudgingly, impatiently, frustratedly, parceling out his forgiveness to you as it come to him in confession. Not only does this passage obliterate that kind of thinking, but Psalm 86.5 says, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon your name. God is ready to forgive, even eager to forgive, abundant in his covenant, steadfast love, where even his goodness is tied to his readiness to forgive. And he's the fountain of all goodness. And so we do God a severe injustice to see his forgiveness as stingy. He's lavish in his forgiveness. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And really, a good test to evaluate whether or not you see God's forgiveness as stingy is to look at how you forgive others. Because if you're stingy with your forgiveness, you must think God's stingy with his. But if you see that God has been lavish and super abundantly kind in his forgiveness, then you're naturally going to be that to other people. But another, another way that we short circuit, undermine or devalue the forgiveness of God is with an attitude of entitlement, whereby we take the forgiveness of God for granted and don't esteem it for the gracious and bountiful gift that it is. So what's the test to see whether you have an attitude of entitlement with the forgiveness of God? Ingratitude. And that's really true of every area of your life. Ingratitude is the attitude of entitlement. And without fail, if you think you're entitled to God's forgiveness, then you have an exceptionally low view of sin and a low view of the holiness of God. 
You don't appreciate just how sinful sin is. No, we should be coming into God's house, his courts with thanksgiving and praise. We should be overflowing with joy and excitement, testifying to the excellencies of God. We should have nothing but excitement and praise for his mercy and grace. We have been abundantly pardoned. And the evidence of that is that it was through one transgression that condemnation came and it is arising out of many transgressions that we have justification. It's amazing. The super abounding result of grace, Christ doesn't just take away the condemnation. He accomplishes for us a perfect record of righteousness. That's the second contrast. The third is this, the superabounding reign of grace. The superabounding reign of grace. And we're going to see that grace reigns. It does sort of implicitly here. It does explicitly in verse 21 where it says, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. There's a relationship between grace, righteousness, and life. They're a, a package deal. And so this is the superabounding reign of grace. Look at verse 17, another conditional statement here. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, and we could say it did, clearly it did, not just over mankind, but over creation, death reigns over all the earth. And the reign of death rendered man incapable of fulfilling his assignment. What was his assignment? He was to rule over the earth. That was what God gave to Adam pre-fall to exercise dominion over the earth as God's representative in the earth, his vice regent. Man was to rule and reign over the earth. Instead, death ruled over him. And because death ruled and reigned over him, man is incapable of fulfilling this divine mission. But, next part of verse 17, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So the contrast is clearly between death and life. The reign of death and the reign of life brought about by this superabounding grace. And whereas death reigned through Adam, we will reign in life through Christ. What Paul here depicts as a future reality and anticipates the, the future consummation 
of all things, the arrival of the kingdom of God, this is pointing us now forward to what's on the horizon, all that is to come. We will reign in life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this life isn't merely future in its focus. This is a life, a quality of life that we actually possess in the present. It's eternal life. John 17, 3, we know God and we know his son. We have eternal life. Even in verse 21, eternal life is referenced there. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. And Romans 6, 4 is going to go on to say that we've been raised to newness of life. So that life that's on the horizon, eternal life in the, the quantity of it, where death is overcome, where restoration comes, the earth and all things. We have the, the breaking in of that life now. We've already experienced that life in the present through newness of life. We've been raised to live a quality of life now in the present that we call eternal life. And so with the connection of the two, this, this promise that we're going to reign in life through Christ, being a future reality, but also recognizing that we have, in a sense, a down payment on this life now, our assurance of all that's going to come is bolstered. It's no different than being able to look at the reality that you know the tomb is empty. Why? Because you've been raised to newness of life. If the tomb weren't empty, if Christ hadn't risen from the grave, then you wouldn't have newness of life. Because you have newness of life, you've been set free from sin. You're walking in a, a new principle of life where you are obeying the word of God by the spirit of God, not with perfection, but with direction. You know the tomb is empty. And in the same way, we know that this life, this reign that is to come, when we will reign with Christ, will be a certainty is a certainty on account of the fact that we are experiencing the beginnings of that life now. Amen. That when the kingdom comes, we will reign with Christ because we will reign in life through him. And it will be at that time that man will fulfill the kingdom mandate. Everything that was given to Adam pre-fall, that he ruined at that time when Christ comes and rules, the kingdom mandate will be realized as the second and better Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule and reign from and over the earth, at which time all things will finally be in subjection under his feet. And the government will rest on his shoulders and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And not only will we reign with him, but then will come the restoration of all things, creation, which groans at present, longing to come out from under this futility that it's been subjected to, this curse. It will at that time. And there'll be a restoration of the earth 
where the earth will yield its fruit. Israel will be restored and she'll finally be the blessing to the nation she was always intended to be, where she will mediate the, the blessing of Christ to the nations. and The nations will flock to her to be instructed in the law of God. Even the animal kingdom will dwell in harmony at that time. And Christ will reign until he has made a final end to all rule, authority, and power, at which time the end will come and he will hand the kingdom over to God the Father and the new heavens and new earth will finally dawn. And so what is lost in Adam is entirely overturned in Christ. He is making all things new and is moving all of creation history to a state of eternal and glorious perfection when God will dwell among us in a way far better and far more glorious than he ever did pre-fall with Adam and it will be eternal and it will be unbreakable, irreversible. And so when you contrast Adam as our head in whom we died with Christ who is our new head in whom we live, it should be apparent that Christ is altogether lovely, altogether worthy of our praise, altogether glorious, altogether worthy of our lives and our worship. The, the contrast could not be more glaring. What we've received in Christ far exceeds what we inherited from Adam. In Adam comes the reign of death. In Christ comes the reign of life. In Adam comes spiritual death. In Christ comes spiritual life. In Adam comes physical death. In Christ comes resurrection life. In Adam comes eternal death. In Christ comes eternal life. In Adam, we fall. In Christ, we rise. In Adam, we are counted guilty. In Christ, we are counted righteous. In Adam comes condemnation. In Christ comes justification. Whereas Adam sinned, Christ fulfills all righteousness. Whereas Adam fails, Christ succeeds. Whereas in Adam comes estrangement from God, in Christ comes reconciliation with God. Whereas in Adam comes judgment, in Christ comes superabounding grace. Whereas in Adam comes ruin, in Christ comes restoration. Whereas sin came in through Adam, atonement is accomplished through Christ. Whereas wrath is incited in Adam, wrath is satisfied in Christ. Whereas in Adam, we're sold into bondage to sin. In Christ, we're redeemed out of slavery to sin. 
Whereas in Adam, the penalty of sin is incurred. In Christ, the penalty of sin is paid. The only question is whether you're in Adam or you're in Christ. And there's no neutrality. It's either one or the other. And you came into this world in Adam under condemnation, judgment, spiritually dead. And the only way to be delivered from that union with Adam is to be joined to Christ. And to be joined to him, you must be born from above. You need a new birth, a new heart. You need to be born again, a spiritual birth where the very life of God would come into your being and you would be raised in newness of life. You need the forgiveness of sin. You need Christ to be your, your representative head. You need him to be your savior, your Lord, your king, your master. You need a, a full transfer from your first head, the first Adam, to the second and better Adam, the last Adam. And so with the, the two put before you in so clearly, it should be clear as day that if you die without Christ, you're going to enter into the judgment of God. But if you would turn from your sin, if you would acknowledge what scripture says about your condition, that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that his wrath abides upon you. And if you would look to the one whom God the Father sent into the world to be the remedy, the solution to our entire predicament, and you would believe on him, giving your life to him, that you would come to him by faith, you receive everything that we've been discussing, this superabounding grace, this, this grace that abounds with surplus, inexhaustibly over sin, this forgiveness, this righteousness that's counted to you, this, this, this righteousness that's alien, not even yours, and you'll have newness of life now plus glorious life to come where you will reign with Christ and enjoy him and the Father for all eternity. And so we would just urge you this day to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. The contrast is so clear. Christ has accomplished that which superabounds over what Adam has. The results of what he's accomplished are abundant in grace. And the future reign guarantees that everything that God has promised in his word will come to full and complete fruition. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. So grateful for the grace that has come to us in Christ. Father, you have forgiven so much. And as your people, we could never exhaust your mercy. Father, help us to 
comprehend the significance of this grace. Fill our hearts with understanding that we would have joy and gratitude, that we would praise you and worship you as you deserve, and that we would be vessels of grace and mercy to others, reflecting your likeness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.